Hello guys and welcome back. Today we're going to be doing episode 9, the beginning of the end, part 1. But before I get into that, we're talking about murder. Because I told you guys in the last episode that we're going to talk about murder. And, you know, murder before, you know, before we get into the whole podcast. Podcast of episode 9, the beginning of the end, part 1. But this one, this guy... And this was in the late 90s. This was 1997. His name is Ali Hassan Abu Kamal. Hold on, I have this sneeze. It's a part of me. <coughs> okay. Classification, murder, characteristics, shooting spree. Um, number of victims, one. Um... Date of birth didn't I didn't give us a month on murder murderpedia dot org. It gave us a year birth year, nineteen twenty seven. Which I don't think that's accurate because if he was nineteen twenty seven, this guy, he would have been a hundred and something. If it was nineteen ninety seven, he would have been like a hundred. I'm guessing, or maybe like, yeah, I'm guessing. I'm assuming. Hold on, I'm gonna calculate it. 27. It's gonna take me eons. Um, 27, 70. Yeah, he was 70 years old, I guess. He was, se- I said it was close to 100. I think that's what I said. But anyway, I'm not saying I have dementia. What? Well, speaking of that word dementia, what's up with people these days saying dementia? Why are you having it with the enunciation? What? What's with the dementia? To say dementia... I know it doesn't matter which way you say it, but it's dementia, not dementia. Like, you're putting dramatic flair into it. Don't do that. Anyway, um, victim profile, Christopher Burminster, age 27. Method of murder, shooting, a three, no, a point three. 80 caliber Beretta handgun, which is very old-fashioned. It's very, like, the the style of it is very, like, woodeny and less metal-y. I like the handle and then the, the Glock part where you just... It is, like, metal piece. And, again, this is a location in New York. Status. Not going to tell you until the end. Okay, so, February 23rd, 1997, Al-Hassan Abu Kamal 
well, I was close. I said 70. He was 69 years old. Palestinian teacher. I knew it was, like, Southeast Asian. I was like, I can't just assume. I'm assuming in this case. Palestinian teacher opened fire on observation desk of the Empire State Building. The gunman killed one person and wounded six others before taking his own life with a shotgun to the head. Law enforcement officials ruled it as a premeditated attack after finding notes indicating anger over Palestine and Israel. At the time, Abu Kamal's widow stated that the shooting spree was not publicly motivated, but rooted in his despondency over financial ruin. Ten years after the shooting, Abu Kamal's daughter revealed that she had lied in hiding that her father's actions had in fact been motivated by Palestinian nationalism. Her mother's 1997 account was a cover story fabricated by the Palestinian Authority as Abu Kamal sought revenge against the Americans, the British, and the French for supporting Israel. Shooting. Abu Kamal opened fire shortly after 5 p.m. on February 23, 1997, on the 86th floor observation desk on the Empire State Building, one of New York's most popular tourist attractions. Before he started shooting, he muttered something about Egypt, apparently shouting, Are you from Egypt? The NYPD said they did not know whether it was said in the effort to spare or identity potential victims. The shooter used a .380 caliber Beretta handgun that he apparently bought in Florida at the end of January 1997. Abul Kamal killed one person and wounded another six before shooting himself in the head. He was taken to a hospital where he died five hours later. The sole murder victim was a 27-year-old. Christopher Burmeister, a Danish musician who was living in New York and played in a band. He was visiting the Empire State Building with a bandmate, Matthew Gross, who was critically wounded in the attack. Suspect, the shooter, Al Hassan Abu Kamal, who was 69, you know, a Palestinian English teacher. He was born in Hafa, in um, Mandate, Palestine. Palestine. In, on September 19th, 1927. Well, now it gives you the month of his birth date. He was the son of a refuge family that fled to the city during the 1948 Arab-Israel Arab, War and resettled in Gaza. He became a well-respected English teacher at a local high school and university. <clears throat> he was also a well-paid tutor and accomplished translator. He earned about 3000 a month and lived in a, an affluent neighborhood with his wife and had six children. Um, I'm sorry, that's a lot of kids. <laughs> if I would have kids, I would have like three or two. But if I were to run a foster facility, I would have a lot of kids because I love children. And not in that manner. I love children as to the fact, like, I love to play with them, whether whether they have a disability, a mental disability, or a physical disability, I love playing with children. In 1996, after 50 years of teaching, he decided his family should relocate 
to the United States for better life. He obtained a legal non-immigrant visa and arrived in New York on Christmas Eve, 1996. Motive. According to the law enforcement officials, Abu Kamal's attack was premeditated based on his visit to the observation desk before the shooting. A pair of identical letters, one in English and one in Arabic, was also found in the pouch around his neck. The letters were diatribed against the big three of the United States, France and England, for the mistreatment of Palestinians, as well as against Zionism, which he had oppressed Palestinians, which he said oppressed Palestinians. Despite the letter's reference to Palestine and Zionist, Abu Kamal's widow offered another explanation for the real motive for the shooting spree was not political, but rooted in a financial ruin. The letter was also named two business partners Abu Kamal claimed swindled him out of money, losing $300,000 in business venture. At that point, she said he became suicidal. His daughter added that he could not return home after losing the money. Faithia Abu Kamal told the press, My husband is not a terrorist. He was just hopeless. He was aged. He had nothing to do with he had nothing to do with politics or terrorism or crime. End quote. On February 2007, 10 years after the shooting, the New York Daily News reported that Abu Kamal's daughter, Linda, was, quote, tired of lying, end quote, about her father's motives for the attack. She told the Daily Newsletter, or the news, that her father wanted to punish the U.S. for supporting Israel and revealed that her mother's 1987 account was a cover story fabricated by the Palestinian Authority. Quote, a Palestinian Authority official advised us to say the attack was not for political reasons because that would harm the peace agreement with Israel. We didn't know that he was martyred by the patriarch motivations, so we repeated what we were told to do. His goal was patriotic. He wanted to take revenge from the Americans, the British, the French, the Israels, and he wrote that after he raised his children and made sure his family was all right, he decided to avenge in the highest building in America to make sure they get his message. End quote. Gunman shoots seven and kills south at the Empire State Building. And this is from CNN. Um, February 24th, 1907. A man opened fire Sunday in an observation desk on the Empire State Building, killing one person and wounding six others before shooting himself in the head, authority said. The gunman, 69-year-old Palestinian, was taken to a hospital where he died more than five hours later, according to New York Mayor Rudolph Giuliani's press office. Again, at this time, it wasn't uh, Mayor Eric Adams. It was Rudy Giuliani. The man shuddered. Um, the man muttered something about Egypt seconds before he started. He began shooting shortly after 5 p.m. Sunday on the 86th floor observation desk of one of the world's best tourist sites, witnesses said. Al-Abu Kamal used a .380 caliber Beretta handgun that he apparently bought in Florida at the end of Jan- January, Giuliani said. 
Quote, I heard a loud popping noise. End quote. The French tourist Jean-Luc Will, age 40. Quote, I thought at first it was a little child playing with fireworks. End quote. Finally sensing danger, Will, 40, his wife and two young sons, one wearing red Chicago Bulls caps, cap, dove to the floor. Other people nearly trampled each other while dashing for exits, said David Robinson, age 35, a British tourist who had arrived in the city only two hours earlier. Everyone started running. Quote. Everyone was panicked. On the opposite side of the deck, Gerard Gutner, 43, and George McHenry, 52, both maintenance workers on for Jersey City, New Jersey, were shooting video of the view of their home state. Drawn by the commotion, Gutner stumbled across a man with a bullet wound in the head. He instinctively began cradling him. Quote, he was coughing blood, I said. Hang in there, end quote. Gunter said. Gunter's hands shook as he smoked a cigarette while recounting the experience. McHenry, meanwhile, meanwhile, videotaped what he described as, quote, five bodies, end quote. Stewed from the deck, footage from the police later confiscated, quote, I don't know why I took those pictures, believe me, end quote. McHenry said, I don't know if I, I don't know if it did any good or not, end quote. But Belgian businessman, Steph Nines, nice, Age 36, recalled hearing a final shot and turning in time to see the gunman slumping to the floor, his dentures out of his mouth. Witnesses said the gunman shouted, quote, are you from Egypt? End quote. During the shooting, according to law enforcement sources, police said they did not know whether it was said in an effort to spare or identify potential victims. His passport said he was from Ram- Ramajah on the West Bank and entered the United States on Christmas Eve, Giuliani said. The other dead man was a 27-year-old Danish musician visiting the Empire State Building with an American friend from Connecticut, Matthew Kroos, 27, who was also wounded, according to Giuliani. The other wounded, including a French couple from Verdun, whose 26-year-old daughter escaped injury, a 30-year-old Swiss man, an Argentinian man, age 52, and a man from the Bronx, unknown age. One of the wounded men was shot in the head, while others were less seriously hurt. Two children were hurt when they were knocked from parents' arms, and four women suffered minor injuries in the rush to the exit. Nine said he had gone to the Empire State Building, quote, to try to relax myself a little bit. End quote. <clears throat> he loved a shaken man. Quote, I've never seen so much blood in my life. End quote, he said. The Empire State Building 
is one of the world's most admired skyscrapers. A 102-story skyscraper opened in 1931 and reigned for decades as the world's tallest until 1972. Building's officials planned a review security procedures through a spokesperson, spokesman defended the building's lack of mental detect, metal detectors or bag searchers and called it security, quote, superb. Liana Hemsley, whose real estate company manages the Empire State Building, said the firm would pay for families of victims to be flown to New York. Quote, we'll do everything possible to lighten their burden during this terrible time, end quote, Hemsley said through Rubenstein. Well, Rubenstein. Then we have um, this next one. Killer's daughter admits it was political by Mahmoud Habouish. NYDailyNews.com. As I was saying, um, Ali Hassan Abu Kamal, um, I was reading, I was going to read next, The Killer's Daughters Admits that It's Political, and this was from Mahmoud Habush, NYDailyNews.com, and this was published February 10th. Well, correction, February 20th, 2007. Um, Gaza City, Ali Bu Kamal's relatives said that they were that they were tired of lying about why the Palestinian opened fire on the observation deck of the Empire State Building, killing a tourist and injuring six other people before committing suicide. Kamal's widow insisted after the shooting spree that the attack was not politically motivated. She said that her husband had become suicidal after losing $300,000 in a business venture. But in a stunning admission, Kamal's 48-year-old 48-year-old daughter, Linda, told the Daily News that her dad wanted to publish, well, publish, punish the U.S. for supporting Israel and revo- revealed her mom's 1997 account was a cover story crafted by the Palestinian Authority. A Palestinian Authority official, well, quote, a Palestinian Authority official advised us to say the attack was not political reasons because it would harm the peace agreement with Israel, end quote. She told the news on Friday. Quote, We didn't know that he was martyred by the patriarch motivations, so we repeated what we were told to do, end quote. But three days later, well, three days after the shooting, Kamal's family got a copy of the letter that was found on his body. They said the letter said that he planned the violence as a political statement, his daughter said. Quote, when we wanted to clarify that to the media, nobody listened to us. End quote. She said, quote, his goal was patriotic. He wanted to take revenge from the Americans, the British, the French, and the Israelis. End quote. She said the family became certain that he carried out the attack for political reasons after reading his diary. Quote, he wrote that after he raised his children and 
made sure that his family was all right, he decided to avenge on the highest building in America to make sure they get his message. End quote. Said Linda, who works for the United Nations Relief and Work Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees. She said her mom burned a diary, fearing that it would cause the family trouble. And that was the end of Ali Ali Hassan Abu Kamal. Again, he was um, the nineteen ninety seven Empire State Building shooting shooter, which only killed one person but injured six other other people, and that's it's an excuse. But at least nobody else was killed or murdered by him. Um, I understand the the issue between Israeli and Palestinian people, but um. Politics is politics. I believe you should keep. Like I know people have certain opinions on the poli- on the politics in this world, but we should all like do it. I know social media wasn't really big vice back then, especially with the whole Instagram and Snapchat back then in the, in the late nineties. Um, but we had Facebook. We had MySpace. He could have he could have voiced his opinion there, but I'm guessing circumstances circumstances or circumstances with these um type of people, and I'm saying these type of people meaning that um again um again being that he was a Palestinian um he probably was again he was going through financial trouble with his family. But at the same time, he had political reasons and motivations for his for the shooting. But circumstances are circumstances like you can't get a phone for your child or children or can't get any computer in your house and that's frustrating for them. And that's why he couldn't voice his opinion on social media at that time because we had link we had MySpace and Facebook at the time. MySpace is still there. <laughs> I would say sadly, my space is still there, but I believe, in my mind, in my mentality, that hardly anybody uses my space anymore. They only use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, and that's all they use. Um, but, again, my condolences to Christopher Burmeister. Again, he was age 20, 27 at the time. Fairly young. He could have easily been a dad, but circumstances had to be circumstances. And, um, Ali Hassan Abu Kamal, um, his status, he committed suicide by shooting himself the same day. So, yeah. Anyway, after talking about that, let us begin. With episode nine, it's early in Arroyo Grande, and I'm sitting in my car waiting. I think back to two years ago, sitting in this car for hours in San Pedro, down the street from Paul Flores's house, again, just waiting. The question I rehearsed a dozen times to ask him now seems naive in hindsight. 
like a handful of people before me. I really expected that Paul would be willing to talk to me if I just approached him the right way. That no one could want to keep a secret like this. That with empathy, encouragement, and sincerity, Paul Flores would be willing to break two decades of silence. I should have known better. Because for 24 years, 10 months, two weeks, and five days, silence worked for the Flores family. On the advice of my attorney, I refuse to answer that question based on the Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution. It worked for Ruben Flores. Okay, well, are you uh, therefore refusing to answer my question, Mr. Flores? Yes, I'm refusing. It worked for Susan Flores. I believe I have a right to that information. If you don't give me the information, then I will go to the court and I'll seek a second deposition and I'll get sanctions against you personally and make you pay for my time and these people's time and the transportation of my client if you don't give me answers to questions that I believe I reasonably have a right to have. So be it. So you are refusing to answer the question. Correct. And it continued to work for Paul over a decade later. Did you have any involvement in the disappearance of Kristen Smart? On the advice of my attorney, I refuse to answer that question based on the Fifth Amendment of the United States Constitution. Do you have any knowledge as to where Kristen Smart's body is? On the advice of my attorney, I refuse to answer that question based on the Fifth Amendment of the United States Constitution. I don't have anything else to ask at this point, so... Yeah, I have a few. <clears throat> Look into the camera and tell Denise Smart that you didn't kill her daughter. I'll object to that as argumentative. And counsel, you should refrain from that kind of stuff. I'd like an answer, please. Don't answer. Look into the camera and tell Stan's If you continue with this line of questioning, we'll stop the deposition right here. Stop it, counsel. Okay. We're up and out. Let's go. Please, we're going off the record. At every turn, Paul Flores chose silence. Even when his attorney was offered a plea deal by the San Luis Obispo District Attorney in July of 1997, which would require him to lead authorities to Kristen's body in exchange for a sentence of six years for voluntary manslaughter. The Flores family turned it down. These kinds of negotiations happen regularly behind closed doors. It's how attorneys make compromises in the interest of avoiding a lengthy series of court hearings and mutually satisfying each of their clients. So if the negotiations had ended there, I wouldn't think twice about it. But the negotiations didn't end there. At least two more times over the next 12 years, Paul's first attorney, Melvin Delamont, attempted to reopen the discussion. Even though every plea deal would require Paul Flores to lead authorities to Kristen's remains, Delamont was still eager to make it happen, as long as he could reach a sweet enough deal for Paul. The following stories have been relayed to me by reliable sources with contemporary documentation. In January of 2003, five and a half years after his client was first offered a plea deal by District Attorney Barry LaBarbera, Delamont reaches out directly to James Murphy's law office in the village. On January 11th, he asks to speak to Tana Sinclair, Murphy's sister-in-law who had since taken on the smart case. She's out of the office at the moment, but on a pad next to the phone, the office assistant takes down this note. Melvin Delamont called to request a lunch meeting with Tana to discuss talking to Paul Flores about a plea bargain. Says, quote, 
Trust me, it's worth your while. Tana is now a judge in San Luis Obispo and unable to discuss her role in the case, but there's a clear breadcrumb trail in the Smart family's notebooks that this lunch meeting did take place and led to a years-long dialogue with Delamotte. Just a few weeks later, the attorneys begin a dialogue with District Attorney Jerry Shea, and this time, they have a CRI coming forward, a confidential, reliable informant who shows up during conversations between Sinclair and Delamotte. The CRI insists upon a charge of involuntary manslaughter, claiming that Paul Flores did not willfully cause the death of Kristen Smart, but that he could lead authorities to her remains. This informant seems to appear out of nowhere and seems particularly interested in securing a less severe charge for Paul. In all likelihood, I believe this informant was Melvin Delamotte. I wanted to interview attorney James Murphy all the way back in 2019, but one of his cases was at trial at the time, and our schedules never lined up. Until recently. Just last week, as I was putting the finishing touches on this episode, Murphy was served with a protective order, commonly known as a gag order, to not publicly discuss the Smart case. He's fighting that matter, arguing that his representation of the Smart family in a civil suit that has since been stayed by the courts should not bar him from being a spokesperson for the family, since he is not a party to the separate criminal case. I'm not sure how this matter will resolve, but luckily, I sat down with Jim before he was served with the order to discuss the 2003 Delamont Overture and why it didn't lead to a resolution. My name is James R. Murphy, Jr. I'm an attorney in Arroyo Grande, representing the Smart family for almost 25 years now. I just mentioned, I, I think I woke up at 3.15, so I'm a little, just a little, just a little bit punchy. To the best of my recollection, it was communicated to me that Paul Flores would allegedly come forward with information about about the location of the body, provided he be allowed to plead to an infraction. An infraction is a parking ticket. Jaywalking is a more serious crime than an infraction. In criminal law, uh, there's rules about how you approach it. You don't ask your client straight up, hey, did you kill Kristen Smart? But you can communicate in a way that the client knows that they can cryptically communicate something. If Paul knew anything, and if Paul was involved, and if Paul knew where the body was, and if he came forward and the deal was all set up where he could walk out with a small fine, they would give us the location of Kristen Smart's body. I don't think that it means that Delamont knew where the body was. I think it means that Delamont knew from his interactions with that client that the client, Paul Flores, knew where the body was. So that was my recollection of the first contact, and that was obviously categorically rejected. I remember. Now, there were multiple other contacts. I've been reviewing today a letter which I wrote 
to Jerry Shea, who was then the district attorney, and in it I state, I would ask you to consider the following proposition. Paul Flores would be permitted to plead to an involuntary manslaughter and receive the upper term. He would enter his plea and be required to take law enforcement to Kristen's remains if the physical evidence is not consistent with an involuntary manslaughter then the court could reject the plea and the district attorney would be free to take whatever action would be appropriate i think the bottom line here is if you're a criminal defense lawyer upper term is a fairly stiff penalty when law enforcement is basically given up on the case anyway so why would you take an upper term plus remember the risk here if there was physical evidence and the physical evidence showed some type of more violent death, the DA's office or the court could reject the plea agreement. And now Paul's already stepped up, pled to an inval, been in, uh, interviewed by probation, talked to law enforcement. So you might as well get the rope out for Paul at that point. So looking back on these proposals, they were not likely to lead to much and they never did the negotiations continue intermittently through 2003 and into 2004 and 5 with delamont requesting additional lunch meetings teasing assurances like when you hear this story you just won't believe it once the flores family files a suit against the smarts in 2005 for severe emotional distress and loss of income Delamont seems to disappear into the background. He hasn't officially been Paul Flores' attorney for several years. But then, in late 2009, after his license to practice law has already expired, Delamont approaches the Smart's defense attorney, Mark Connolly, at a wedding and says that he thinks he can get Paul Flores to talk if the deal is right. He calls Connolly's office the next morning, now sober, and reiterates this. I can make it happen. This time, he wants an even less restrictive deal for Paul. No interview with law enforcement. No admission about how Kristen's death occurred. Only an offer to lead authorities to her body. District Attorney Jerry Shea is involved in these negotiations and unwilling to offer this much of a compromise coming back with a complex eight-step deal which was then apparently rejected by someone in the Flores family. All of these negotiations took place in private and are not admissible evidence of anything. But anecdotally, they offer important insight into Paul Flores's knowledge of where Kristen Smart's remains ended up. And it seems to point to the fact that Melvin Delamotte was confident that Kristen's body could be recovered by his client. Otherwise, returning to these negotiations over and over again was a waste of everyone's time. Mel Delamont never really stepped up. It's conceivable that periodically he would think about his involvement in this case and say, maybe I'll reach out again and see if I can get everybody to give everything up with no risk for my client. When I heard the first initial overtures by Delamont, there's only one conclusion to be reached. Paul Flores knew where her body was. 
and I'm not the dumbest lawyer in San Luis Obispo County. The point is, things didn't have to happen this way. Paul Flores turned down many simpler solutions with jail terms that could have been served and completed a decade ago. But none of it matters anymore. Because as I sit here in my car in Arroyo Grande, at 7.40 a.m. on a Tuesday morning, Ruben Flores comes down the hill from his house on White Court, handcuffed in the back seat of a police car. Communities like Arroyo Grande have been good to me and observant citizens have kept me informed of unusual activity in the area, like a circle of sheriff's vehicles, marked and unmarked, sitting in a church parking lot before 7 a.m. It's how I knew to wait here this morning. Within a minute, my phone starts to go off. Neighbors in San Pedro, 192 miles away, are sending me dozens of photos and videos of Paul Flores in a t-shirt and pajama pants, handcuffed in his driveway. The clock has run out. Paul is charged with the first degree murder of Kristen Smart and Ruben with accessory after the fact, helping his son dispose of Kristen Smart's body as has long been speculated. So why are they being arrested now after all this time? Because during a dig at Ruben's house on March 15th, Investigators believe that they finally located the exact spot where Kristen Smart's body was buried 25 years ago. But there's one major problem. She's not there anymore. And that's where you come in. Another early morning in March, a month before the arrests, San Luis Obispo Sheriff's detectives knock on the door of Ruben Flores' home on White Court and serve him with a search warrant that requires him to leave and remain off of the premises for the duration of the search. From his garage, they remove a red two-door Volkswagen, a 1985 Cabriolet covered in cobwebs. This vehicle is part of the reason they're here today. And it could be important, because in May of 1996, when Kristen Smart disappeared from the Cal Poly campus, the car was parked just a mile away at the home of its then-owner, Ermelinda Flores. Two human remains detection dogs from Santa Clara County, a yellow English Labrador named Echo, and a Belgian Malinois named Annie, are walked around the vehicle and let inside. After a few minutes, one of the handlers signals an officer who comes over and takes photos before the car doors are closed and a tow truck is backed onto the sidewalk. By now, the media has arrived and for an excruciating 28 minutes, onlookers watch and film the tow driver as he attempts to hook up the car and pull it up the steep driveway. As this is happening, 
An unmistakable white Dodge van turns onto the cul-de-sac and drives slowly by the house until officers ask the driver to move. He makes a U-turn on White Court and then stops in front of Megan Healy, a reporter live-streaming for KSBY News. The driver, in sunglasses and a bucket hat, is Mike McConville, the longtime live-in boyfriend of Susan Flores. Hi there. Oh, you like my van? Do you guys have, do you have any comment? Yeah, any comment? Yeah. About what? About the search warrants. What search? The search of Ruben's house. No, All right. Does Susan have any comment? Have you guys talked to Paul at all? Mike returned several more times that day, at one point telling investigators standing nearby that they don't have permission to search his trailer, which is parked in Ruben's driveway. He asks if he can move it, but they tell him to leave it where it is and move along. Once the Volkswagen is successfully towed away, another car takes its place in the driveway, and the driver unloads and assembles what looks like a low-tech baby stroller. This is the ground-penetrating radar unit, technology that has advanced significantly since Susan's Branch Street house was searched by attorneys back in 2007. And this is a good time to remind you that today's search of Ruben Flores's house on March 15, 2021, is the first time the Sheriff's Department has ever brought ground-penetrating radar or cadaver dogs to this property. So the Flores family's behavior during this search is important because it gives us some insight into whether or not they believe there's anything here that might be discovered. And just a few hours after being asked to vacate the property, Reuben drives up the hill, circling the cul-de-sac to get a look at what's going on and waving at reporters and onlookers. Behavior that strikes most people present as taunting and calloused. He returns two more times on his own before Susan's car comes up the hill, with Reuben in the passenger seat. This search of the property continues through the night and into the following day. If you haven't seen Reuben Flores's house before, it's large and gray and sits at the top of a hill, situated in the middle of a one-acre parcel of land. The house is canted at an angle, so the front door of the house faces the corner of the intersection of two streets. Because the house is diagonal, and one of the streets is steep, the west side of the house, where the garage and driveway are, sits basically even with the ground. But as you follow the length of the house from west to east, traveling downhill, the foundation of the house gets higher and higher above the ground below it so that by the time you reach the far east side of the house, you're about eight feet above ground level. What this means is that there's plenty of room to walk underneath the house without even needing to duck down. Investigators spend a lot of time on this east side of the house where a deck hangs over the downslope. Beneath the deck, everything is enclosed by wooden lattice and a door on the southeast corner opens to allow access under the house. It's a part of the property that former tenants of Rubens told me he instructed them to stay away from. A plumber even reached out last year to tell me that he was once called to the house to fix a sink 
and when he told Reuben he would need to access a pipe under the house, he was told to just forget the whole thing, and the job was cancelled. Late on the morning of search day two, a number of investigators crowd under the house, where the deck wraps around the south side facing the backyard. Heading uphill to the other side of the house means that the foundation gets closer to the ground as you walk west, so that by the end, you have to duck down or crawl. And it's at this southwest portion of the underside of the back deck that investigators find something. From down the hill, I can hear the metallic clanging of shovels digging into the dirt. It goes on for over an hour, inside and just outside of the lattice covering the underside of the house, with investigators exiting regularly with large buckets full of dirt. And just when it seems like something big could be happening, all of the investigators suddenly leave the house and the search is concluded with no announcement at 1.50 p.m. Fifteen minutes later, Reuben, Susan, and her boyfriend Mike McConville return to the house and Reuben immediately disappears under the deck for a few minutes. Most of the media has dispersed, but a few reporters are still standing on White Court. Ruben Flores emerges from under the house and asks Megan Healy, the reporter for KSBY News, if she'd like to bring a camera and come see the damage that investigators did to his deck. Because the search wrapped up suddenly, with no announcement or arrests, in what I can only assume must have been a rush of adrenaline and confidence, Susan Flores agrees to grant an interview to KSBY her first ever media interview after almost 25 years of refusing to comment. And the catalyst for finally breaking her silence isn't what you might expect. It's the first interview I've ever done in my life. What led you to talking with us today and letting me into the backyard? I know I'm mad because they took the Volkswagen. That's my little restoration project. It's hard not to notice how carefully Susan chooses some of her words. They keep trying to find the answers with us, and they keep failing because the answers aren't here. It's very simple. It's simple for me to say because I know the answer's not here with me, not here with him, not here with anybody. It's not here. It's just I don't get it. In other words, are you saying that you are innocent, Reuben is innocent, we have, we have no responsibility in her disappearance or what happened to that young woman. No. You can find the full interview up on KSBY's YouTube channel. But one of the biggest takeaways of the half-hour discussion is that Susan never refers to Kristen Smart by name, referring instead to a young girl, this woman, that young woman, or somebody. They're looking for remains of somebody commenters are quick to point out that this is textbook dissociation perhaps a coping mechanism as stan smart suggested to me the first time i spoke with him i think they uh somehow have justified in their mind that our daughter didn't count that she wasn't a human that she wasn't someone loved i don't know why they can't relate to us why do you care oh why is joe red over the past 25 years the Smart family's attempts to contact members of the Flores family have always centered around humanizing Kristen, sending them pictures of her as a child, 
videos of her dance recitals and sporting events, trying to awaken the compassion in two fellow parents. Instead, Reuben and Susan refused to speak to them, although Susan claims in her KSBY interview that the Smarts never tried to talk to them. And they really would never talk with us. Which we know isn't true. The Smarts called Susan, Reuben, and Mike McConville over the years and were always met with hostility. They mailed them photos of Kristen and videotapes, and their friends from Stockton sent dozens of postcards, pleading with Reuben and Susan to please ask their son to share what happened to Kristen. In late 1996, after many fruitless attempts, they tried to reach Reuben's extended family down in Torrance. In her notebook from September of that year, Denise writes about finally hearing back from Reuben's niece, who told her, Please stop calling here. Our grandma is 85 years old, and if she found out what Paul did, she would have a heart attack. If our grandma's heart stops, it's going to be your family's fault. In her 2006 deposition, Susan even produces an envelope that Denise Smart mailed to her on August 29th, 1996. Enclosed is a hand-drawn card that Kristen made and a note that reads, quote, Mrs. Flores, I ran across this Mother's Day card from Kristen and it broke my heart. I wanted you to have a copy and know that my heart is broken. I need to find my girl. Please help. Love, Denise Smart, Kristen's mom. The Smart's attorney asks, quote, Is there anything with regard to these initial letters that you think is tortious, meaning wrong, that for which you can recover money? Susan replies, It's harassment. Reuben, in his 1997 deposition, says these early letters and postcards from Stockton contained threats to his family. These threats that you have talked about, just, just, they're always asking him where the body is and, and some that, that we're going to come and get you. It's just, I don't know, different things. Okay. Which I don't one? remember them all. Okay, I understand. In Ruben's eyes, asking where Kristen's body is, is a threat. Even Mike McConville, who got a single message on his answering machine from Stan Smart in 2002, considers it harassment. The Smart's attorney asks, quote, could you just tell me, if you can, what you recall, what he said? Mike answers, quote, He asked whether or not I had any information about the disappearance of his daughter. That if I had, if I had any information, would I please give him a call at his work phone? Mike even confirms that this is the only time anybody in the Smart family ever called him. And still, he considers it harassment. Part of the severe emotional distress he's suing for. It wasn't the accusations against Paul, but this outright family-wide indifference and even animosity towards a grieving family that lost Reuben and Susan a number of friends over the years. There was such disdain and hate and the anger that she had towards the Smart family. Even at the beginning, it was that's what made me mad. It wasn't, you could understand in a way of a mother or her poor little boy being harassed and all that, I could un but to be so angry right from the get-go, that's kind of when I really, I mean, the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. 
made me mad and I wanted justice. In October of 1996, Stan Smart traveled to the Central Coast from Stockton, where he and a small group of volunteers put up missing person flyers around the five Sorry, cities area. The next day, they returned to Arroyo Grande to find that every flyer they put up had been torn down, from fences and telephone poles spanning from Grover Beach all the way up Highway 227. Yeah. It's worth noting that these are not flyers yeah, with no, Paul's face on them. In fact, there's no mention of Paul at all. They're the official posters designed by Crime Stoppers with Kristen's senior photo, her identifying information, and the contact numbers for the Sheriff's Department and Crime Stoppers. And yet, Ruben Flores tore them all down. And how do we know it was Ruben Flores? Have you ever been to a place called Grover Recycling? Yes. Okay, um, did you... Um have some type of a, did some type of incident take place between yourself and at Grover Recycling? No, I just ripped on the poster, that's all. Okay, and she had some posters which had your son picture on them? No. What, what kind of posters? The one from the sheriff's. Had you complained to the police about the posters? No. How, why would the police come to your house in connection with the posters? Because some, somebody down in on Canyon Road, or whatever you want to call it, saw me taking down the posters and they called the police. As I said, this hostility towards a family searching for their daughter doesn't sit right, even with residents of Arroyo Grande who have known the Flores family for years. On the cover of the Five Cities Times Press Recorder, October 5th, 1996, a resident on Canyon Way is reported to have called the police to complain about Ruben tearing the posters down. During our interview in 2019, Stan Smart describes being moved that Arroyo Grande's residents were watching out for the Smart family. Some of the people who live in Arroyo Grande got after them and they came out to rip them down. They said, no, don't touch those. Those have to stay up, which I thought was interesting. You yeah. know, people had decided with us that it was appropriate to try to hold them accountable. Ruben's anger over these flyers is confusing. It reminds me of another point Susan brings up in her KSBY interview. This woman didn't disappear in Aurora Grande. She disappeared in San Luis Obispo. But yet they've made this community here because we live here responsible if they, if they believed that our son had some responsibility, they didn't have to gang up on us. It's an interesting stance, one that I would characterize as, don't look for your daughter here. Even though she's missing, Arroyo Grande is only 15 minutes away from campus, and the last person to see her alive lives in this area. Still, you have no business bringing this to our town. And maybe it's because the smarts were getting too close for comfort. Because the spot that Susan is standing in front of in her KSBY interview, the spot at the west end of the deck where investigators collected buckets full of soil from, is the spot where they believe Kristen Smart's body was buried all along. The reason they started digging in this particular location to begin with? An anomaly in the ground-penetrating radar data large enough to fit a human body. And later soil testing confirms the presence 
of biological evidence, the nature of which has not been publicly disclosed, but which indicates that a human body was indeed buried here. And with that knowledge, I want to walk through how it managed to take 25 years to discover that. On July 18, 1996, San Luis Obispo Sheriff's investigators served a search warrant at Ruben's White Court home at 7 a.m., just as he was about to leave to take Paul to a summer school class. As I've said, the search warrant was for specific items of evidence, including Kristen's crop top, black shorts, red tennis shoes, dorm key, and the clothing Paul wore to the party on Crandall Way. They don't find any of those items there. They don't bring dogs with them. They don't dig in the yard. They don't do any forensics testing. And they don't go under the house. Even though cadaver dogs had just alerted to the scent of human decomposition in Paul's dorm room two weeks before, they don't seem to consider that Kristen's body could have ended up at his house. And they never returned for another look. According to a tip that came in back in 2006, a former roommate of Paul's confided in her boyfriend that Paul had confessed that Kristen's body was buried under a, quote, gazebo in his parents' yard, a structure that neither the White Court or Branch Street Homes has. But in describing it, Paul allegedly told this roommate that the police were so bad at their jobs, they'd been standing, quote, right on top of Kristen and still didn't find her. Whether Paul actually said this to his roommate or not, knowing now that evidence indicates that Kristen's body was likely buried under Ruben Flores's deck from the very beginning, detectives presumably were standing right on top of her. Another massive failure of law enforcement. In March of 2007, after ground-penetrating radar found some anomalies under the concrete of Susan Flores's Branch Street home, the Smart's attorney, Mark Connolly, gave the information to the Sheriff's Department and requested that they file a search warrant to dig it up. That search warrant never came, and after a few months of waiting, Connolly decided to approach Susan's attorney, Jeffrey Ratting, and ask for Susan's permission to dig, only in the two spots where soil disturbances beneath the concrete registered, with cadaver dogs present. Two whole weeks passed before Ratting came back with a response from Susan. Digging was okay only in those two specific spots, but no cadaver dogs. Since the sheriff's department hadn't filed a warrant to search, Connolly accepted the compromise. But while these negotiations were going on, an Arroyo Grande resident reached out to the Smart family with a story that she thought could be important. She said that Reuben was dating a close friend of hers and that the friend had casually mentioned to her that morning that Reuben had been very distraught lately. He was worried that his yard would be searched next and his girlfriend was looking for a way to stop that from happening. The woman reporting this believed the information was a strong indication that authorities were searching the wrong yard. But it still wasn't enough for investigators to get a search warrant. So six months later, Connolly asked Reuben directly during a deposition, quote, would you have any objection if I did ground penetrating radar in your backyard to make sure that there's nothing there? Reuben replies, quote, after, that sounds like a good idea. 
After all the smarts and all your people do their depositions, after we finish with all depositions, you come and ask me again, and we'll talk about it. Later in the same deposition, a representative from the Smarts Insurance Company circles back to the question. Quote, Mr. Connolly asked you a question. I wasn't quite sure of the answer, so I want to revisit it. He asked you if you would mind if he arranged ground-penetrating radar in your backyard. I'm not. The record is certainly better than my recollection, but you said something about you wanted to see the depositions completed? Ruben replies, quote, well, after all the depositions and both sides are all done, then you can ask me again. The rep goes on, quote, okay, my next question is, what difference does that make if their depositions are taken in this case to your granting permission? Ruben answers, that's just the way I feel about it. And it's the last time that the plan is ever discussed. For the next 14 years, Ruben's house on White Court will not be searched for the remains of Kristen Smart. And when it finally is in 2021, the evidence will strongly suggest that a human body was there when this negotiation was broached in 2007. Knowing that Kristen's remains were likely buried under the house for so many years makes me go back through my timeline following her disappearance. And a lot of things stand out now. The following conclusions are all drawn based on the belief that Kristen's body was under the deck of Ruben's home from Memorial Day weekend 1996 until it was recently relocated, which comes directly from the bail reduction report filed by the district attorney's office following the arrests of Paul and Ruben Flores in April of this year. I should say here that this assertion has not yet been argued in court and is subject to change as more information becomes publicly available. On May 27, 1996, when Officer Bo Pryor knocked on the door of Ruben's home to serve an arrest warrant for Paul for driving with a suspended license and then failing to appear in court, Kristen's body had likely been buried under the deck just a day or two before. I've personally always believed that this knock startled Ruben, who expected it was investigators looking for Kristen. And when he realized it was unrelated, his decision to drive Paul down to the police station after 11 p.m. that night to be booked, jailed, and then bailed out after midnight was likely based on the fear that waiting until the following morning could mean another surprise visit from law enforcement, who he didn't want back on his property. When a search warrant was finally served at Ruben's home that July, investigators probably were standing right over the spot where Kristen was buried. After they left his property empty-handed, Reuben went down to the DMV the same day and registered his white 1985 Nissan pickup truck, which he then put in Paul's name two weeks later. Even though his two-and-a-half-year-old green Ford Ranger was still parked in Reuben's garage, allegedly with a brand-new bedliner that Reuben had purchased as a birthday present for Paul, five months before Paul's actual birthday. The real eerie stuff starts in August of 1996, a month I returned to over and over again. On August 6th, Ruben received a phone call from Five Cities Times Press recorder writer Tom Parsons, who asked him for comment about the recently unsealed search warrant affidavit in which details of the sheriff's investigation were first made public. Besides the search of his home, 
Ruben was unaware of anything investigators had been working on behind the scenes up to this point. According to Parsons, Ruben asked for the details of the affidavit to be read to him over the phone. This was the moment when Ruben first learned that four trained cadaver dogs had alerted to the scent of human decomposition in Paul's dorm room. Four days later, on August 10th, Irma Linda married her fiancé, Brett, at a ceremony in Shell Beach, with a reception following at the Flores family's White Court home, while Kristen Smart's body was likely buried there. People who attended the reception have told me that Reuben and Paul seemed distracted, talking to each other in whispers while others were celebrating. And a family friend told me that Susan seemed extremely agitated and kept making paranoid comments to the guests that someone was going to come shut off their power any minute. My belief is that these behaviors were both connected to the fact that up until this point, both Reuben and Susan believed that police's suspicion of their son in connection to the disappearance of Kristen Smart was based only on the fact that he had been the last person to walk her back to her dorm and then made inconsistent statements to the police, which they had remedied by hiring him an attorney, Melvin Delamont. But after August 6th, they knew that the police had more, and that the search for Kristen Smart was now pointed firmly in Paul's direction. On August 14th, Susan Flores receives her first letter in the mail from Denise Smart, pleading for the Floreses to speak with her. Susan doesn't respond, and three days later, Stan Smart drives back down to the Central Coast, meeting with Keith Sharon, a writer for a Torrance newspaper called The Daily Breeze. Stan and I were walking around the campus looking in trash bins for Kristen's body. Like, it was so new that he thought he was going to find biological evidence on the campus. And I remember the campus being empty, Really, what he had was a, a layout of the trash dumpsters, and he was walking dumpster to dumpster, which was so sad to see. Imagine a father looking for his daughter's remains, and I just, I will never forget that image of him, like, almost shielding his eyes each time he opened a new dumpster, looking for her. And and we were, we would walk past the campus into the woods a little bit, kicking up brush to see if he could find a body. After searching the area surrounding the Cal Poly campus, Stan Smart and Keith Sharon drive to Ruben Flores's White Court home, where they witness a U-Haul truck in the driveway being loaded with boxes. Fearing that Paul may be attempting to flee from the investigation, they take photos and then follow the Flores family caravan on the southbound 101. Susan and Ermelinda in Susan's Ford Explorer, Ermelinda's husband Brett driving the U-Haul, and Ruben Flores driving Brett's gray 1989 Toyota pickup truck. Paul doesn't appear to be with them. They tail them for almost 50 miles to the town of Buellton before Stan gives up and turns around. He drives back to Arroyo Grande and parks at the curb of Ruben's house around 11 p.m. They're unable to make contact with Paul there. I don't know what the language rules of your podcast are, but he, he was a bit of a fuck-up, and he, he was in trouble and out of trouble, and I think the dad bailed him out. 
if not literally, figuratively, when Paul got in over his head. And that's what the smarts believed had happened here. If my presumption is correct, and that Kristen's body remained under Reuben's deck, Stan Smart, who crawled through drainage pipes and under bridges, hiked to the top of mountains, and drove for hours at a time to search for his daughter's body, came the closest he ever would on the night of August 17, 1996. Refusing to trespass on the Flores' private property, even when he knew they weren't home, Stan stood on the sidewalk overlooking the house, just 60 feet away from the spot where investigators now believe Kristen's body was buried all along. I just remember being out in front of the house thinking that they believe the daughter is buried there, but they're not going in. Everybody was trying to do it the right way. And Stan wasn't going to, like, hop the fence. I felt helpless. Five days later, Susan Flores suddenly files for divorce from Ruben and holds a yard sale at the Branch Street house. A listing in the local paper reads, Furniture, antiques, glassware, computer, more. Moving. Everything goes. A week later, Denise Smart sends Kristen's handmade Mother's Day card to Susan. And although Susan never responds, it feels like all of the stress is weighing on her. And interestingly, it doesn't seem like she and Ruben are on the same page. Because two weeks later, Susan Flores is hospitalized at a Royal Grande Community Hospital after overdosing on sleeping pills. When she's deposed in 2006, she denies that this was a suicide attempt. But attorneys produce a report from her hospital stay, which states that nurses did believe it to be a suicide attempt. The report also states that Susan claimed to have had an argument with Reuben that day, where he yanked on the front double doors of the Branch Street house popping off the little fascia trim that connects the two doors. After this, she says Reuben pushed her and she hit her head. The report includes an assessment that Susan is, quote, obviously depressed with major stressors that would frustrate anybody and describes her demeanor with nurses as faintly hostile. The note concludes, I feel a 5150 is in order a psychiatric hold for individuals who present a danger to themselves or others. Susan continues to deny in her deposition that this was a suicide attempt, but attorneys produce a disclosure from her gynecologist, who she told in 1997 that she had had in the past, quote, significant depression and a suicide attempt. The timing of this overdose, as well as the timing of her divorce from Reuben, certainly warranted interest from investigators and attorneys. And Jim Murphy questions Reuben about it in 1997. Do you know what was the cause of the medical problem that led her to be taken away in an ambulance? Too many sleeping pills. Did your wife uh, receive psychiatric uh, tra care, rather, as a result of the overdose? Reuben, don't answer that question. That's invasion of her privacy. It's not reasonably calculated to lead to discovery. If she took sleeping pills because she has information about uh, her son being involved in the uh, disappearance and or murder of Kristen Smart, I think it certainly would be important. She may well have taken an overdose of sleeping pills because she has information concerning this matter, and that is what we believe. 
and she may have taken sleeping pills for another reason. But that's something that I, I can't let Mr. Flores talk about this time. That's an invasion. Well, that's certainly wife's privacy I think, interest. I think that that you can protect her privacy interest, but I don't see how you can order a third-party witness not to answer that question to protect her privacy. Is that what you're doing, basically? Yeah, that's uh, it's her husband. When did uh, when did your wife um, take the overdose of sleeping pills? I don't know. Was it after the disappearance of Kristen Smart? I imagine because it's. Did, uh, do you know the reason why your wife took the sleeping pills? No. How did you find out that she had taken uh, an overdose? She called somebody, and somebody called me and said, your wife's not talking too well over there. So incoherence, so I drove over there to see what was wrong. Just taken to Arroyo Grande Community Hospital. No, public record. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Now, um, you can answer where she went to, whether it's Ray Grandy Community Hospital initially, yeah. but that's as far as that inquiry yeah. is going to go. Yeah, she was taken to Ray Grandy Community Hospital. Um, after she was, dis was she held there for, um, was she, strike that, was she hospitalized there for a number of days? Yes. Do you know if there was a uh, medical hold on her for psychological reasons? You don't have to answer that question, really. I'm instructing not to answer that question. It invades her privacy rights. And that's not the last incident between Susan and Ruben in 1996. After being discharged from the hospital, she says she and Ruben attempted to reconcile their marriage, and she moved back into the White Court house, as the Lassiter family moved into the Branch Street house. In late October, in fact, at the same time that the Lassiters turn over the earring found in their driveway to a San Luis Obispo Sheriff's detective. Susan allegedly trips over a bench inside of a closet at Ruben's house and ends up with multiple fractured ribs. When asked about this injury during his 1997 deposition, Ruben doesn't seem eager to talk about it. Um, we have information that... Um... Your wife took a fall in a closet sometime after this incident and suffered multiple fracture injuries. Mm -hmm. um, is that uh, true that she suffered some fracture injuries in a fall? Can you obtain hospital information? Well, perhaps you could just answer my question. Is it true that your wife suffered multiple fracture injuries in a fall? Multiple? No. It's an answer that stuck out to me the first time I viewed this tape and every time since. One coworker of Susan's who spoke to the Smart's attorney back in 1996 described the extent of the injuries as a fracture to at least four ribs. So why is Reuben bothered by this description? Why would you minimize your wife's injuries if you had nothing to do with her accident? Back in 1997, Jim Murphy's mind goes to the same place mine does. Do you know the circumstances under which uh, your wife suffered uh, a fracture injury? Yeah, she fell over a um, bench. Was there any connection, was there any argument 
taking place between you and your wife no. concerning Paul Flores, which precipitated the injuries suffered by your wife in this fall? No. Susan stays in the White Court House, and in late November, when a process server attempts to serve a deposition subpoena to Paul there, Susan makes it pretty difficult. In depositions and in her interview with KSBY, Susan insists that her family has always cooperated with the investigation into Kristen's disappearance, and that it's the Smart family and the Sheriff's Department who didn't want to talk to them. But here's how the process server describes her family's cooperation in his report. November 26, 1996, 7.38 p.m. Per mother, Paul is not in. No idea when he will be returning. Is it work, then going out with friends? Refuse to give me place of employment. November 27, 7.14 a.m. Per mother, not in. When asked when he would return, her reply was, no comment. November 28th, Thanksgiving, 10.49 a.m. Mother outside, refused any info. No comment. November 29th, 11.50 a.m. Per mother, he doesn't live here, you can't leave anything. November 30th, 10.30 a.m. Per mother, refused to take threw the papers outside on the lawn. When leaving, defendant's father came outside and took pictures of me in my car. During this same time, Paul quits his job at Miller's 76 station and signs up for the Navy in Orange, California. He's denied entry into the program on December 3rd and moves into his sister's apartment in Irvine. Later in December, Keith Sharon, the Torrance Daily Breeze writer who traveled to Arroyo Grande with Stan in August and wrote several articles on the case that year, is expecting an arrest any day and hoping to be ready to cover the story when it happens. This Paul Flores arrest is going to be my story. I, like, I'm aggressively going after it, right? I come to work and I believe it was a, a day that I wasn't scheduled to work, like a, like a Saturday morning or or a Sunday, it just, I, I'm not sure exactly what day it was, but there was no one else there. And I walk up to the door and there's a letter taped on the door of the Daily Breeze that led into the newsroom. And it says on the outside of the envelope, Paul Flores, holy crap, this is for me. And I take the letter and I remember it was written in pink ink and it was the lyrics of the song 1979 by the Smashing Pumpkins. And I spent hours with that letter trying to think of any kind of hidden references. I showed it to everybody in the newsroom. Like the next day when everyone was there, we were trying to decide, is somebody trying to tell us something? Is this a, is this a lead? and we couldn't put it together. So I always thought that somebody close to the case was trying to communicate with me in some way, but the lyrics are kind of weird in that song when you think about what happened. And he's right. And we don't know just where our bones will rest. To dust, I guess, forgotten and absorbed 
into the earth below. We feel the pole in the land of a thousand guilts, and poured cement, lamented and assured, to the lights and towns below. It could be nothing at all, or it could be that someone close to Paul Flores was trying to get the paper's attention, but didn't know how else to do it. There are a few more details on this note, which I'm choosing not to share, in hopes that someone with information might come forward. I'm in possession of this person's handwriting, and if you or someone you know may have left it at the Daily Breeze in December of 1996, you can reach out to me on my website. Paul Flores remains in this vicinity of Southern California, known as the South Bay, for most of the next two decades. I traveled down to the South Bay area last month, hoping to speak to people who could tell me about run-ins they had with Paul over the years. And while I did find several, I found way more people in the Torrance and Redondo Beach areas who shared with me a rich history of the Flores family, one that I've been piecing together for a long time, and a chapter of this story that, until now, has never been covered. And one that seems to indicate that Paul's predatory behavior may have begun long before Kristen Smart disappeared and continued long after. That and more in part two. is written, produced, and hosted by Chris Lambert. Associate producer is Alexandra Wallace. Special thanks for this episode to Garen Sinclair, Sandy Arnold, John Segali, Carla Clausen-Hoffman, Mark Connolly, Eric Cramp, Jamie Lewis, Tessa Witkowski, Karen Garcia, Denise Andrini, Krista Bandy, Riley Taylor, Therese Cron, Karen Murphy, Lauren and Denny Itai, and Amanda Lee Design. Okay, guys, since we finished um, episode 9, the beginning of the end part 1, um, I would like to go ahead and talk about Paul Flores's, um, his statements when he was questioned with his attorney. I think it's kind of stupid that he keeps pleading the fucking fifth. Every question that's related to fucking Kristen Smart. I'm sorry. I just say it. Because I am not pissed off on, just on this case. I'm pissed off because of what happened at work. But I'm going to explain to you about that in the, um, after this. But it's kind of stupid that he keeps going like, I plead the fifth, um, the United States, the Constitution, blah, blah, blah. Um, really? Stop pleading the fucking fifth every single time that they fucking let you. Like, shut the fuck up, answer the fucking question, and that's it. Like, what the fuck are you hiding? Besides you killing her, you know? But anyway, um... Their asses were arrested! Yay! Um, but... That's all I have to say about that. But the time was pretty interesting of Paul Flores and Ruben Flores. 
Um, being that the timeline is, I'm not going to explain the timeline because the way that Chris explains it, it's Chris from the old, your own backyard. He explains it. It <laughs> seems complex, but, um, yeah, um, but in all actuality, not everything is complex. Okay, so, um, now that's done, um, I'm going to explain to you what happened at work. Specifically today, um, at 3 slash 2 slash 23, um, I was told at a specific time, like around 9 something, to go upstairs, because we have like three, four floors. We have the roof, we have the second floor. We have the first floor, which is where you enter, and then we have the basement level. And I work at the basement level in B2. But when I was filling up water and stuff, I was told by one of my coworkers, um, the oldest one with the daughter named Nicole, she told me to, you know, go upstairs to room three because room four is being monitored by um so-called class it's like oh and it's an acronym class um and i was like "Uh oh so i guess i better help room three because they're putting three students from room four into room three so they need help so initially they had 12 kids uh, but then adding three more, that would be 15 kids. So it would be 15 kids in total. And then when I went to room three, we were um, dancing, doing whatever, because it was raining today. But then when we started playing, oh, shit hit the fan. And I'm not one to cry. I am, kind of, because I'm an emotional person, being that I'm Pisces. And that my moon sign is a Scorpio. Or is it a Scorpio? I totally forgot. I don't think it's a Scorpio. But, um, the moon sign is definitely something different than my sun sign. So, yeah. Um, but I'm an emotional person. And when I get emotional, I get really emotional to the part I'm not wailing, I'm just silently crying. So I'm crying um, later on, like around like 11 or, or 10 something. And, um, and this is because I don't, I'm not saying I don't like people, I do like people, but specifically there's like this one girl and she's like 25, 26 range, age range and her name's Michelle and she's not from my middle school. Michelle is different than this Michelle. Michelle is, like, Latina. And I'm not sure my other one was Latina. Uh, my other Michelle. So the Michelle was Latina. But this one's Latina. And she is feisty. She wears fake fucking nails. Like, who doesn't? As a woman. <laughs> Except for older women. Like, older, older women that have children. Like this white woman, Elizabeth, the one that told me to go upstairs to room three. She doesn't wear fake nails. She paints her nails. 
and they grow naturally. But, um, uh, Michelle, they never said anything. They just kind of sprung it upon me, like, oh, you're going to go upstairs because there's no such going on in room four and they need more help they can get because they're sending three kids to their room this is not I was like okay and then I went up did my thing did what I had to do with the teacher's aid and then playing with Milan and Daker and Daker's playing with dinosaurs Milan is making pizza and then Michelle comes in with her fucking red notebook like, she's jotting down notes or something. And then she, like, splits the page in half and puts happy face and then sad face on one of, on, you know, she puts happy face on one side, um, sad face on the other. Like, you know, pros and cons sort of thing. And I'm, like, pissed off that she's doing that. I'm, like, why is she doing it? Why is she doing it? And no one told me from the get-go, which is kind of, like stupid because you're supposed to tell us what you're doing yes i understand you're monitoring you're monitoring us all the time but you don't need to do it all the time you don't need to do it every day on a constant basis you need to do it every so often not telling her how to do her job but she's telling me how to do my fucking job and i know how to do my fucking job since i got recruited since i passed probation because when i started i started in september 8th in 2022 and probation is fucking three months. And three months has fucking passed. Leave should be. She needs to back the fuck off. Because. <laughs> seriously. She's telling me things that I'm trying to do. And I'm trying my best here. As a 19 year old. Almost 20 fucking years old. I'm trying to do it. And she's not letting me. She's constantly reprimanding me. Constantly on my ass. Constantly on my case. And she's not letting me fucking do my job and that's fucking annoying and that's when I got upset when she left the room when she left the room I was like is she finally gone is she finally leaving is she finally gone when she when she was gone I got upset teary-eyed I got upset twice and I cried in front of the children in front of Milan and Milan was like teacher are you okay like I'm fine because these kids are Spanish speaking kids I speak Spanish I'm Mexican so I'm bilingual, so I'm bilingual, so I speak two languages, almost three, because I speak a little bit of Italian, but not a lot, but anyway, um, I just kind of, it wasn't the children, the children are not at fault, I'm at fault here, I felt like I wasn't doing my job, I felt like I need to do better, and I feel like she hates me even though I did nothing to her. Like, from the get-go, I did nothing to her. She just wants to be that that boss. She wants to be Sonia. Because Sonia... There's two Sonias. There's teacher Sonia. And then Sonia, our boss. Sonia Vera. Sonia Vera. She wants to be her. And she's like... 70. 60 years old. And she wants to be her. And she's not. She's like 20s. She's like in her mid to late 20s. And it pisses me off that she's trying to act like the boss around me and not around other... Well, technically around other people too. Because I've been hearing through the grapevine that she wants to... Like, she's annoying as fuck. 
She's annoying as fuck. I haven't been here from the teachers from room 5. And a little bit from room 3. And um, nothing from the other um, three rooms. But, yeah. That's basically it. And I'm kind of annoyed. Because she's like, um, you should ask questions. You should ask them and ask them why. Ask them how. Ask them this. Like, if and don't forget to include the other kids at your table. I was like, um, Milan's telling me things, and I don't want to cut him. I don't want to cut him off, and then like, not talk to Dacre. I love Dacre. I love them both, but I have to. I am not that type of girl, or teacher's aide specifically, to go like to ignore him I obviously see Dacre is in front of me playing with dinosaurs yo no soy terco I'm not I am not um dumb stupid or an idiot I obviously or blind I'm not blind I obviously see Dacre is in front of me playing dinosaurs he's playing with the plastic dinosaurs and Milan is doing pizza like fake plastic pizza with the accessories with the tomatoes the pepperoni the pasta well not the pasta you know what I mean the cheese and the mushrooms he has all that and I'm playing with him and we're making pizza and I don't know how to because when I used to be in this room room two I could kind of sort of ask questions and I was a newbie and then I stopped asking questions because I was in B2 and I asked more questions, more open-ended questions there. But when Michelle's not around, and I'm glad that she's not around in B2 because I don't want her around me at all. I understand that's her job to monitorize different teachers and other things like that. But don't do that to me. Don't do that to me. Don't treat me indifferently just because I'm new here. Just because I'm young. Don't treat me indifferently than you treat other teachers. Don't do that. That's not nice, and that's not a good coworker. <laughs> yes, as soon as when you graduate high school, they don't give you a handbook of how to be a good coworker in the work field that you choose. You learn along the way, and I'm learning every single day, and she doesn't understand that. I'm learning every single day. Every day is a learning curve. Every day is a new day. Come on, give me some leniency here. Yes, it's been like five months, but you learn a lot. You learn so much. So, seriously, she has to give me some leniency. And she's just like, just one of those bitches that just doesn't like stop. Like, it's annoying. I just want to, like, when I leave, when I leave work, like leave, a, like, leave and not come back. I'm going to tell her, I'm going to tell her off and tell her, what is it with you and me? What is it with you? Because I need to understand so we can get past this. Because you and I are in different people. You and I are different people. We learn differently. We talk differently. We're different people. We eat differently. We make different things. But... And we communicate differently. I don't understand why is there always this back and forth between you and I. I just want to talk to her and try to understand not just where she's coming from, but also 
why is she acting the way she's acting? Does she want to be like Sonia? Does she want to move up the, f- I wouldn't say food chain, but up the chain of command and be like Sonia? Something like that. Because I don't know. I honestly, and who the hell knows with her? But honestly, I need to know what's up with her. <clears throat> because I'm not going to sit here every single freaking day and go to room four, or three, and five and see her and then hope to God she doesn't talk to me. Because honestly, it's not like I don't see her every day. I do see her every day. <clears throat> so, and it's not always a problem. It's just every single time when I'm upstairs and upstairs floor, floor, not room two or room one. In room four, five, and three, there's always a thing with Michelle. Always. I don't know why. I don't know. But that's all I have to say. Okay, next time we're doing episode 10, the beginning of the end part two. I hope you guys enjoyed. (sighs) Episode nine, the beginning of the end part one. Speak to you guys in the next one. Take care. Bye.